Uh, well, before I begin, uh, I want to thank Chandler last week and Cody for, as always, filling the pulpit. Uh, in case you didn't know, in the two months that Chandler's been here, I taught him everything he knows. So, um, a lot of work. He was just clay, and I'm, no, I'm just kidding, I didn't do that. We, uh, we are blessed at this church um, to have um, staff members here who proclaim the glory of God who preach the gospel and preach the word. So thank you, Chandler. Thank you, Cody, for all the times that I haven't said thank you. Um, appreciate him as well. Well, two weeks ago in Hollywood, an event that happened more than 90 times before took place. But something happened that had never happened before. Yeah, I'm talking about the slap heard around the world. If you haven't seen it, don't Google it now. Don't YouTube it now. Watch it later. Just watch the slap part. Don't watch the other stuff. But... Um, Comedian Chris Rock did what most comedians do at these events. If you've watched these, these old uh, uh, Dean Martin celebrity roasts, all they do is make fun of people. And so Chris Rock made fun of celebrities. The more famous someone is, the, the bigger object of ridicule they become. That's what comedians have always done. And it's understood that if you want to have a, a big platform, you're opening yourself up for ridicule and criticism. Well, Chris Rock made a joke about Jada Pinkett Smith, Will Smith's wife. And if you watch the video, Will Smith initially laughed. And the camera panned over to his wife. And we didn't see Will Smith's reaction, but we can be certain that he was laughing until he turned and saw his wife. And that turned into a frown. Men, we've all been there before at some point where we think something's funny until we look at our, our wonderful wife. And we realize, it wasn't that funny. I speak from experience. The hope is... That if we were in an audience watching someone make fun of our spouse, we would get angry. We wouldn't appreciate that. We, we would be upset that someone is making fun of the one that we love more than anyone else. And as you know, Will Smith, his anger boiled up until he walked across the stage and slapped the living daylights out of Chris Rock. Most of us would have passed out for some reason. Chris Rock survived. The shocked viewers, because it's something that we hadn't seen before, especially from one of the most famous actors in history. But the way that sides were taken after is far more interesting than a slap. I've seen people slap. I've been the recipient of slaps. But how people responded after that by taking sides, where you had groups of people that said Will Smith did exactly the right thing, and then you had others who said we should never resort to violence. Some said that Smith did the right thing slapping Chris Rock. Now, I, I agree, it's wrong what he did. I agree that violence accomplishes nothing because it's done from a place of anger and vengeance. But Will Smith was right in one thing. He defended his wife. Not in the right way. But he was angry that someone made fun of his wife. When he saw the, the look of hurt and disgust on her face, he was instantly angry. Someone made fun of his wife, and he was going to make sure that they never did that again. Now, I know this is a very strange way to begin a sermon, but I'll ask you this. Do you feel the same way about God's word? Do you feel the same way about the local church? To the point when you see damage being done to it or people saying things about it that, it that are untrue. Do you rise up in anger? 
Are you frustrated with people who, who, who come into our church or come into any church and put on the, 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 the sheepskin and pretend to be part of our flock and yet they seek to destroy it from within? Does it make you angry? Does it bother you when people who claim to be Christians defame the bride of Christ or they say that the Bible is not all that we need? Today we're facing similar problems to those who received Jude's letter. The church was failing to defend itself against intruders who pretended to be part of the flock. And yet they sought to devour believers. They were ravenous wolves. Please don't think that Jude's letter it was only for those in the early church or it was only written for them, but it really doesn't apply to us. No, Jude's letter actually applies to us very much today. This morning we're looking at three verses that show this, this righteous anger that's coming out against these people who seek to destroy the church. And Jude shows us three things, three verses in here. The immorality, the arrogance, and the ignorance of false converts and false teachers. And Jude says, be watchful. In verse 8, we see the immorality of false converts. Now, when I say convert, I mean teachers. It's a, I, I, Jude, I think, treats it the same way. Those who have influence in the church, who have claimed to follow Christ, but in reality don't. This is who Jude is speaking of. Those who come in to seek division. And to break apart the unity of the body. The point is that people who weren't really believers had become, at least on the surface, part of the congregation. Look at verse 8. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. Here we see the godlessness of false teachers in four things that they do first. They rely on dreams. They elevate dreams to be equal with scripture. Uh, one of the biggest arguments that I personally have ever been in inside of a church happened some time ago. And it was over this. That, 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 that some person said that uh, God told them to do something. And I asked how God was telling them that. Now, I probably should have stayed quiet probably should not have said anything. I probably should have waited till the end. But my question was still valid. I said, well, how do you know it's God that told you that? He felt hurt, this man, that I would doubt his experience. But we know that our own thoughts and our own experiences are just not that reliable. Police say often that eyewitness testimony is not that reliable because we often fill in gaps with, with things that we think happened but actually never did happen. Yes, God has used dreams before. Yes, we've seen it used in scripture a few times. Yes, God has given visions to people. But we today have the complete word of God, so the need for a lot of these supernatural things have certainly diminished. After all, why do we need something that simply repeats what the Bible says already? But there's another issue that comes into play when people elevate their dreams and elevate their visions. What happens when the dreams of one contradict the dreams of another what happens when once one person says that God told them what they're doing is actually okay but in scripture we see that it's sin is this not how Mormon church began 
Here's what we see clearly in Scripture, and someone says, no, 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 you, you've got this wrong. Here's what God really says. This opens the door for people to believe that there is no objective truth. Alan Noble, who's a professor at Oklahoma Baptist University, writes this in his book entitled, You Are Not, a, you Are Not Your Own. He says this, quote, to be true to yourself is categorically different from being true in an empirical or logical sense because there is no external or objective way to judge or reassess our, reassure ourselves. How can you ever be sure that you are being true to yourself? How can you ever know if you are being authentic? You are utterly alone in your judgment, sovereign but alone. And to make matters worse, you cannot trust yourself. The human mind is capable of tremendous self-deception. See, Noble was talking about how people live for what themselves. They, they live to be authentic, to be real, that they, they, they're who they really are comes out. But the reality is, is how are you even sure that that's what you really are? Yes, I'm this, I'm this. How do you know that? It's subjective. It's your standard. As Christians, we have a standard. It's God's word, the unchanging word of God that is our standard through and through. Not dreams, not visions, not any way that you feel inside or what your brain tells you you are. No, you are what God says you are. And we know that through his word. This is what Alan Noble was speaking of. Being authentic, authentic is actually better than being godly. Noble argues that if we try to be our true selves, we're only actually confusing what reality is because we lie to ourselves all the time. We, and others lie to us as well. One thing that I, people have said that mirrors don't lie, except when they're in the gym and it makes you look like you're way more fit than you really are. I'm staring at myself in the gym and I'm thinking, man, I'm doing well. And then I go home and I say, what in the world? This is what we do to ourselves, isn't it? We're like gym mirrors. We, we, we have a better picture of who we are and what we do. And the same goes when we elevate visions and dreams above where they ought to be. When we do that, like being our authentic selves, we try to toss out any objective standard and we become the authority. We become the God of our existence. If all we have is our own system of rules and standards, there are no rules or standards. You say that Jesus is the only way? Well, that's right if it works for you, but it's not right for me. If my dreams and visions are elevated to an inappropriate standard, then you might as well toss out the Bible because you've lost all basis for objective truth. Each person gets to decide what their truth is. Have you heard people say that? Speak your truth? It's trendy now. No, speak truth there is a truth one truth it's God's truth it's God's word that we hold as our objective truth we talk about truth here a lot we do that because without it we have nothing if you're a Christian you believe in objective truth you believe that God is sovereign you believe that Jesus is God that Jesus lived a perfect life that he died on the cross that he rose again you believe that Jesus will one day come back to restore his creation you believe that every person has willfully sinned against God and that every person was born with Adam's guilt. You believe that the Bible is God's word. You believe that the only way for people to find forgiveness is through the blood of Christ, and through faith given by grace. There's so much pressure, church, to downplay that. 
to say that this doesn't really matter. No one wants to seem intolerant or bigoted. So what happens to us is that we swing in the opposite direction. Rather than proclaiming truth and standing firm, we're afraid that we're going to lose friends, our job, our standing in culture and society. And so we swing to the other direction. And it's dangerous. We don't want to talk about things that upset people. We don't want to tell anybody that they're wrong or that there is only one way to salvation. But without truth, we have nothing. Without truth, we are hopeless fools. God's word is the source of truth. So anyone who elevates dreams or experiences or thoughts or visions... Anywhere close to the power and authority of God's word is someone that Jude said is a dangerous person. The second thing that Jude says about false teachers or false converts is that they defile the flesh. The people Jude is referencing likely didn't think that they were doing anything wrong. They were doing what they wanted to do. Now, can you not see the connection to our modern life today? That if we polled people who we would say are living in, in whatever sinful lifestyle you, you, you want, living together before marriage, homosexuality, transgender, all of those things that we would say, yes, that clearly goes against God's word. If you ask them, they'd say, I'm being my authentic self. I'm, I'm being me. I'm being true to myself. This is what I want. You can see the connection to modern life here. Something written 2,000 years ago has absolute uh, connection to what we're seeing in our world today. I need to say this. Every person has inherent worth, dignity, and value to God. Every single person, regardless of what they've done or what they're doing. And unfortunately, churches, many in our own denomination, have made enemies of fellow image bearers. uh, And that's hurt our effectiveness in making disciples. This is a command of Jesus to go into all the world and make disciples. If we're too busy yelling at people who are not even believers, then we've hurt our impact. It's made us irrelevant to many people. Now, I mention this because I've heard too many people talk about how bad the world is outside, and I've seen so many preachers focus on changing the culture outside of the church. And we must remember that people who are not Christians are not going to behave like Christians. We live in Babylon. We're, we're not Israel. We're not God's chosen land. We are, a for, we are foreigners in a hostile land. We are Surrounded by Babylon. And Babylonians are going to do what Babylonians do. This is what Jude says here. Jude says this, that, that, that these people have defiled their own bodies. In other words, you could say is they've polluted their own bodies. This describes our time, isn't it? People are polluting their bodies. They're defiling their bodies. Literally, people are cutting their bodies Ripping things off of their bodies. Why? Because they don't get that God has created them exactly how he wants them to be. That God has given us a a responsibility to live as he lives. And so people who don't know Christ are falling into this trap. And Jude says the danger is that people who are doing these things are coming into the church. And they're polluting the church as well. Here's why I'm saying this. That should break our hearts when we see what happens in our culture, what's acceptable or what's even celebrated. But I don't care about politics. Not here. 
I don't care about going and protesting or fighting a political battle, no. It breaks my heart to see what happens to people. And to see that not only are they heading towards an eternity apart from Christ and hell, but they are also destroying themselves along the way. I don't want to see any of that. It should push us to love them even more, shouldn't it? Be the city on a hill, be the light that shines in the darkness. And here's why I'm saying all this. Remember who Jude is writing to. Jude is not writing to people who are not Christians. Jude is writing this letter to churches. He's writing this to Christians. We are held to a higher standard than those who don't know Christ. He's writing about people who claim to follow Christ but live like hell. That's what Jude is writing to. The third thing that Jude says false teachers do is they reject authority. Now, some have said this may be the church, but I think this is they're rejecting the authority of God. They have, in their hearts, replaced where God belongs, and they put themselves in his place. They were rejecting God's sovereign authority. And what happens when we do that? We become God, little g God. Churches tend to attract people like this, though, don't they? Someone who comes in who's charismatic, who, who, who knows the Bible, who can say verses, who, who can attract a following, who's friendly, who's nice. People follow after that. And they gain a following. And people go. And churches get ripped apart. These false converts, these false teachers that Jude is speaking of, have claimed to follow Christ, but their lives told a different story. As a husband, I can tell my wife and my children that I love them, but if I ignore them or I'm cruel to them, they're never going to believe what I say. And so these teachers have probably made professions of faith. They've probably said, yes, Jesus is Lord, but they live completely different lives. Finally, Jude says that false teachers blaspheme glorious ones. Now, this is difficult. These these verses are some of the most difficult verses in Scripture. Actually, Jude's a very difficult book because there's references there that, that we may just not connect with very well. But the point is the same. And this is difficult. This part is, is, is not easy. And there are differences of opinions. Some say that Jude is referring to fallen angels or demons. But looking at the entire text, Jude may be also talking about good angels. The reasoning is if God created angels to help us and protect us, why would anybody say terrible things about them? Think about what we've seen in verse 8 already. False converts and false teachers don't care about the protection that God provides for them. If someone has decided that they don't need God's word, that dreams are better, if they've decided that they will do whatever they want with their bodies and that God's standard doesn't matter, if they re reject God's authority, then what good will angels be to them? To sum up verse 8, there were people coming into the church who didn't care about the gospel. They didn't care about the unity of the church. They were only concerned with how they could advance and how they could gain a following. Truth was relative to them. Whatever they thought was right was right in their own eyes. In other words, Jude saw the sin and chaos that was coming into the church and not only coming in but being accepted into the congregation. And we've seen this in the letters that we've studied in the New Testament so far. They all have similarities, don't they? We've studied Galatians and 1 Corinthians, and there's a lot of similarities happening. And, and the, the thread that ties it all together, the thing that connects it all together is the fact that, that sin 
was allowed to, to reside in the local church, and it was so incredibly destructive. And so Paul and Jude are writing to say, you've got to make this correction. The church matters. You are allowing the church to splinter and break apart. You're allowing sin to reside in the church. And that can't happen. This is what we've seen so far in this, this passage in, in verse 8. Now in verse 9, we see the arrogance of false converts. So we've already seen the immorality of false converts. And verse 9 shows us the arrogance. It says this. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Now, again, this is a, a difficult verse. There are plenty of verses that are, that are hard to understand in Scripture. But what's most amazing to me when I read the Bible are those things that I don't understand culturally. It doesn't change the message. There are references, there are verses that I just don't understand that scholars argue about or debate. But it still does not change the gospel message. For 2,000 years, it has remained the same. Not only that, 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 that it, since it doesn't change the message, that it's relevant for us today. But we can't ignore those things we don't understand. One, one guess for this passage in verse 9 is that the verse is referring to, uh, comes from a book that's not even included in the Bible. So Jude may have been referencing uh, one of two books that are not even included in Scripture. The writing hasn't been preserved, so scholars try to piece things together, try to figure it out. One option that you can choose is that Jude meant that Satan wanted the body of Moses as a potential relic for idol worship, or that maybe he challenged Moses' right to be buried by God because he murdered an Egyptian. Another option is that opponents insulted angels who were demons, but Michael was so humble that he didn't condemn the devil, but asked God to do it. Now, these are... There's not a right answer here, or there is, but we just don't know it. But I want to step aside just for a, a second to address something that Jude just did. Because you may be thinking, wait, Jude referenced something that's not in Scripture? How can that be? The references that he made, uh, scholars have found out that comes from a book called either The Assumption of Moses or The Testament of Moses. They're not in the Bible. So why is he quoting them? couple reasons. First, this has happened in the Bible. Paul in Acts chapter 17 cites pagans. So, so we know that this is not abnormal. This has happened before. Second, and this is even more importantly, all truth is God's truth. So the Bible is God's word. It's God's truth. But there are truths outside of the Bible. Nothing in the Bible says two plus two is four. But two plus two does equal four. That truth belongs to God. All truth is God's truth. And just because the Bible is sufficient... We have to be honest and say that the Bible doesn't contain every truth. All truth is in found in Scripture, but the world is full of truths that we don't see in the Bible. Third, quoting someone that you doesn't mean that you agree with everything that they say. I've quoted many writers in my sermons and in my writings that I have serious disagreements with. The reality is, is that the, the guys on staff and even amongst the elders, we have differences of opinions on how to interpret parts of Scripture. But we stand together. When I quote someone, it doesn't mean that I, 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 I agree with everything that they say, but there's a nugget there that I can use. I'll give you an illustration. There was a church in a city that I served in as an as a associate pastor. And uh, one of the, the associate pastors at another church 
uh, sent out an email, and in this email, he, it contained a quote from a guy who was loosely affiliated with uh, a, a movement, uh, a dangerous movement, but, but a movement nonetheless that happened about 15 or 20 years ago. And this guy was not really connected, but he was loosely, and so the quote came out, and so a person in the church decided it was their responsibility to search out every quote to see where those quotes come from. And so after hours and hours of searching and searching online, they found, ha, I found this guy, spoke at a conference with some of these other bad guys. And it made this associate pastor's life so difficult be simply because he quoted, and it was a good quote from a guy who was connected with a bad movement. And it was so difficult that he was forced out of his job. Whether he was fired or resigned, I don't know. I know that he was not there not long after. Simply because he quoted someone who this lady found some other stuff about this person. Now, I believe the woman thought she was guarding the truth. I, I believe that she thought she was protecting the truth, but she failed to see that we can use things with authors and with writers and with pastors and preachers that we just don't agree with everything on. Now, back to verse 9. Michael knows his place here. He knows that he's just an angel. He knows that he's not God. He knows that he's not the creator. He is a created being. And so he says, I won't pass judgment on anyone. Rather, he says, God will judge. Now, it's been helpful for me, and I hope this is helpful for you, because you're going to have family and friends that think that you're just judgmental. You say that Jesus is the only way. Well, who are you to judge? You say, you say this lifestyle or this way of living or, or what you're doing right now, brother, is not good. It's not biblical. You're going against what God has given to us. Well, who are you to judge? You're just as sinful as I am. Absolutely I am. It's the worst thing in the world today to judge someone's motives or to judge behavior or to, to make it look like you think you're better than someone else. But when we repeat what the Bible says, we're not passing judgment. We're telling the truth. And even for those who aren't Christians, if they're honest, we'll admit that what we're saying is what our faith demands us to say. But we don't have the authority to pass judgment on someone else's eternal fate. But false teachers, false converts often believe that they have the ability to do these right things, to speak for God. And Jude is saying that false teachers simply are just not humble. Even an angel, this is what he's saying, even an angel who is a, a created being but a special created being, even an angel has humility to say, it's not my responsibility to judge eternally. This belongs to God. Finally, in verse 10, we see the ignorance of false converts. Jude writes, but these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Michael knew that Satan was wicked, but he didn't issue a judgment. See, here's the thing about false teachers. They always think that they have special knowledge that others lack. Thankfully, by God's grace, I've only seen this a few times in churches where there'll be someone who gathers a following, someone who is very charismatic, someone who looks like they know the Bible, and, or maybe they do know the Bible, and they gather this following, and, and, and before long, it's pretty apparent that what they're doing. But the people who are drawn to them are people who think that they have some special knowledge. I mean, we wonder, we, 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 are, are, we wreck our minds trying to figure out how people could have followed David Koresh. Who believed that he was Jesus. How, how, how could that happen when hundreds of people move into a commune to follow this man who ultimately led them to their death? 
because they thought he had special knowledge that everyone else lacked. He had, he had something, he knew something, he had special gifts that no one else had, so people followed after him. It's not hard to see. They're attractive, especially to new Christians. But it's sinister. And we must always be watchful to protect the church and one another against people who do us harm. Now I'm going to close this morning by addressing three types of people. Especially three that from this passage, there are really three types of people. And all of us will somehow fit into one of these three. First, I want to address Christians. Now this will be a funny illustration. Some of you will appreciate this. Um, something happens to me almost every morning and it's the highlight of my day. So I get up early, I take the boys to school, I come back home, and often I want to just go back to sleep because I'm not used to getting up at 6. And so I want to go back to sleep. But right when I get home or right before I get home, a little 4-year-old gets up. And after she does the morning routine, she wants to jump in the bed and watch Looney Tunes. And I grew up watching Bugs Bunny and Daffy Duck, and so I love her jumping in and we, we sit there, she puts her head next to me on my pillow and sometimes I'll fall back asleep and sometimes I'll watch the cartoons, but just the joy of her seeing these things for the first time. And so as I was reading this, I started thinking, there's a connection between this and a cartoon. Do you remember um, the short Ralph Wolf and Sam Sheepdog? If you don't remember, you remember that the wolf kind of looked like Wile E. Coyote but had a couple different facial features and the sheepdog had the hair that came over its eyes and you couldn't see. And if you've seen this, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, uh, the, the, every cartoon that they did, and they did about a half dozen, every cartoon that they did saw um, um, Ralph, Ralph the uh, wolf try to dress up like a sheep. All he wanted to do was get some dinner. And Sam's sheepdog was there guarding, just standing there. And you wouldn't see him, and the, the wolf would go in, and he would put on sheep's clothes, and he would go in and mesh in with the, with the sheep, and you couldn't really tell. And then he, as he starts to bite, the sheepdog's standing right there, and usually the sheep, sheepdog would punch him in the face or do something to stop him. And I started thinking about this, that, that Sam always catches Ralph because Sam is vigilant. Now, I know I'm going through a cartoon, but bear with me on this. He does his job because the sheep are under his care. Now, you see the connection here. That this is what Jude is telling us to do. This is what Paul is telling us to do. This is what Jesus has told us to do. Care for the flock. Watch the sheep. He's talking to elders and pastors, but he's also talking to one another. It is our duty and our responsibility as church members to protect one another from this happening. The Bible calls us sheep and he warns us that there are wolves coming into the flock that are seeking to devour us. Christian, guard the truth. Guard correct doctrine with your lives. There are wolves ready to pounce and so we must stand guard. This is our calling as believers. The health of the local church is paramount for the spread of the gospel. And you better believe that Satan knows this. What better way to defame the name of Christ than to wreck a church? What better way to wreck the gospel spread than to have a pastor who abuses his church or a pastor who commits a sin that wrecks the church body? Satan knows this. 
What better way than to have false teachers come into the church and wreak havoc on us? Satan knows this. Ask yourself this question, why would anyone who's not a Christian want to be part of a church that's problematic? Do you see how the gospel can lose its impact in the culture when the church doesn't care for the truth that we claim? This is our primary job is to proclaim the gospel, to make disciples. The second group of people that I, I want to address are those who are not believers, those who are not Christians. I hope you understand why protecting truth and protecting doctrine is important for us. I've had conversations with people who are not Christians who, who disagree with almost everything that I believe. And my response has always been this, what would you have me do then? If, if I believe with all my heart and I stake my life on it that the Bible is God's word, what would you have me do? I cannot ignore it. If, if, if you believe as a Christian that the Bible is God's word, you are bound, it is your duty to obey what God says and to proclaim it. What would you have me do? Along those same lines, I believe that if the Bible is God's word and I must obey it, doesn't it make sense that I would do all that I can to protect it from harm? You wouldn't want someone to come into your house with bad motives, would you? So the person who doesn't know Christ, the person who's not a Christian, here's what I ask of you. Understand that we're not trying to keep anyone out of a club. We're trying to protect the church that Jesus himself established. I also want you to know that judgment awaits those who are not part of the Christian faith, those who have not come to Christ in faith. Judgment is the future. We've all earned this. It's all, uh, we all deserve it. But for those who have faith in Christ, that judgment has already been given to Jesus. But for those who haven't, judgment does await. Lastly, maybe after doing some soul searching, you're part of a, the third group where you say this, something like this. You know, I, I may be one of those who Jude is talking about. I may be someone who's put on the mask of a Christian. I, I, I've, I've pretended to be a believer. I've kind of done the rituals. I've, I've done all the things that a Christian should do, but I've only cared about myself. I've only cared about things that benefit me rather than the congregation. There are warnings against that in Scripture, and they are not good. But there is hope for you today. The thing about Christianity is that no matter how bad you've been, there is hope. The Apostle Paul is what today we would call a terrorist. He was responsible for the death of Christians. He was a bad guy. Christians feared him because he orchestrated persecution, but God still used him. Paul wrote about half the New Testament and is the second most influential person in our faith. God took a killer and made him into something new. He took a man who had no problem ordering the execution of innocent people and made him one who set aside his rights and privileges for the sake of others. And if you're still breathing, like Paul, there's still hope for you. There is hope that you can still meet and know the living God, that he can forgive you of all that you've done, past, present, and future. And he can give you a purpose. God can give you hope that leads to you living for his glory. And that goes for every one of us. That goes for the, the person who's a believer. We certainly need to be reminded of this. But that goes especially for those who don't know Christ. And especially for those who have come into churches and have caused problems. We are never too far away from the grace of God. Even those who seek to harm the church.
And the only thing I'd say, I'd say the same thing to Saul, who became Paul. You're never too far out of the reach of God's grace. God's arms could extend out to even you. And what a testimony it would be for you to turn from your sin and live for the glory of God. No matter how bad you've been or how bad you are, God's grace and God's glory is 